This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 41. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to part two on the Build Wealth Canada show, where we're continuing our conversation with the 25-year-plus financial planning veteran, John Callos, on how to execute an early retirement. So as you saw in part one, to keep things practical and not just theoretical, we'll be using my own actual financial plan that John did for us to answer some of the common questions about pulling off an early retirement. Now, just a quick reminder that if you have your own questions for John and or if you'd like to know whether you're on track to retire when you want, then you can get a free consultation with John by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash john just j-o-h-n and when you sign up you also get a free guide on the top questions to ask your financial planner which you can use to help uh, you come up with some questions to ask john or you can use them on your existing financial plan or advisor to see if they are still the best fit for you now in this episode series you'll notice that john and i talk about doing index investing using etfs which stands for exchange traded funds now we're both big fans of this type of investing because it's an easy and passive way to grow your investment portfolio while also letting you take advantage of the lowest fees in Canada. Now, if you want to learn more, you can learn exactly how I invest in this way by trying out the index investing course risk-free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. You'll have 60 days to try out the entire course risk-free. And if it's not for you, just send me an email and you'll get a full refund. No questions asked. All right. So once again, that link to try the course risk-free is buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. All right, so I hope to see you there. And now let's continue with the show. All right, so in our case, you factored in everything that we just spoke about to see if we can fully retire or at least semi-retired right now. Uh, and what I really liked in particular was the summary page that you produced where it talked about things like what's the most we can spend annually and still have enough to stay retired and you know how much we actually uh, need to retire. So you know, so using our actual numbers uh, and financial plan as an example, like as a real life example, can you speak to what the results for us were in the context of, you know, what are the answers that we should have from our financial planner when getting a financial plan like this done? All right. So, so I, I touched up on that a little earlier, but I'll, I'll, I'll get into it again and give you some clear, clear ideas. So, you're sitting with a financial planner. They've done your financial plan. There are options. And and the first thing that we need to look at is if the objectives of the client are realistic. So if you're saying, you know, I got uh, $200,000 in savings and I want to have $60,000 when I retire, but now I don't want to spend any more money, you're not being realistic, right? Or I don't want to save any more money. You're not being realistic. So the first job is to make sure that the goals that a client has are realistic. And if they're not you know, they should be explained to the client um, what they need to do to make it a little bit more realistic, all right? So the choices are, though, in your, we'll talk in, in your case, but I'll, I'll talk also in general. In your case, what you gave me a certain number that you want to spend when you retire, you know, after taxes are paid, for example, what's your, what, how much can you spend, be, you know, after taxes? And I told you, well, you know what, based on how you're investing your money, based on how much you have, based on your life expectancy, so on and so forth, I told you that you can spend a little bit more than what you're looking for. So that was one choice. Another choice, and this 
typically doesn't happen the way it did for you, Cornell, that you can retire at 33, all right? But, you know, typically somebody will say, I want to retire at 60. So I can show them, well, you know what? Yes, you have enough to retire. Or, you know what? You might need to work a little bit longer. If everything else is equal, you don't have enough money. You might need to work a little bit longer. Or based on how we're investing your money and how much money you have and how much you're planning on saving going forward, you can retire five years earlier. So that's an option that should be discussed. Another option that I showed you and that I show everybody is based on if, if everything else is being kept equal, retirement age, you know the, the amount of money you want to spend, you might be able to take less risk. That was the case in your situation. Or I might tell people, you know what? Everything else being equal, keeping your retirement age the same, keeping the way, you know, how much money you're going to be saving, then you might have to increase your risk, which I don't like doing because typically we've established with the client how much risk that they're able to take or how much of the ups and downs they could digest. But that's an option. And in your case, the option was you can you don't need to be 100% equity or 80% equity. It's different for everybody, but that's another option, okay? The other uh, option, which is basically um, – I'll show you if you have enough money to retire or not at a certain age. So if you, if you don't have enough money, I'll say you need to save a little bit more or um, you, know, you, you need to – you need to be doing part-time work when you retire. So those are the options basically that people have. They can increase their lifestyle or decrease it based on, you know, based on the numbers. They can, you know, retire later or retire earlier. They can take less risk or they have to come up with more assets. So it's not only, you know, there's one choice and let's choose whatever. We can blend everything. When I use a financial planning software, I have a button that says optimize or, and it'll show me, you know, you might have to work two more years and you might have to save an extra $2,000 a year. And you know what? You might need to increase your equity a little bit. So we can obviously take things and, 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 and put them or blend them together, let's say, and come up with, with, uh, with several changes, but it's always good to, to know if you're able to retire on time, how much money you're going to need, how much money you're going to save, that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I really, really like that because it was uh, it was almost kind of like a menu of options, right? And uh, you can spend more or less. You can retire earlier or a bit later. You can take more or less risk, right? So it's not – and like you said, it's not an all or nothing type deal, right? So it's not exactly. like, oh, to hit our number, we have to you know decrease our expenses by – 40% and that's so unrealistic and we can right, we'll never do right. that. And now you're kind of, you know, depressed because you, you know, cause you're like, Oh, I'm going to have to keep working till much more than, you know what I mean? So till 85, yeah. 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 Whereas yeah. if you're not, if you're not all or nothing, if instead it's like, okay, well look, let's like, these are the different levers you can pull. So let's say, okay, well we'll spend a little bit less. We'll work maybe just, you know, you know, just a little bit later, maybe like a extra year or so. And we'll take a little bit more risk. So, yeah, it's going to be a, not as smooth of a ride, but right. it's going to make a big difference. You know, so it's like you're taking you, you can you can take it all from one bucket or, you know, or you can take little bits and pieces. And, you know, when you, I, I like this, you know, just taking bits and pieces from each one, because then 
your your lifestyle isn't you know drastically changed for example sure. uh, and you know and yet you still get to hit your goal so it's really neat how you can kind of play with these different levers based on the client and then they can say okay you know this is this is kind of what we feel comfortable with and then this is what uh, what's kind of sustainable so i don't know i, I really i really really like that uh, that approach yeah. and you i'll tell you one more thing cornell that we haven't discussed is when you have a financial plan like this, the way you have right now, for example, the way all my clients have, it's very difficult to get it wrong. It's very difficult, pardon the expression, to screw up. Because let's say, for example, the markets do very, very poorly this year, okay? Next year, I'll come and have a, and have a discussion with my client and say, well, you know what? Obviously, the market underperformed this year. So... Now it looks like instead of saving five thousand dollars a year, you know what? Let's bump it up to fifty-five hundred because mm-hmm. we're compensating for this poor year that we had. On the other hand, we've had great years over the past, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years, where I was able to tell clients, well, you know what? You don't need to save so much anymore. So go get that car that you wanted, for example. Guilt-free spending, okay? And this is something, I just brought this term up and it's very important to me. There's so many, and this happens a lot in my industry. There are so many people that are saying, don't spend a lot of money, right? Um, think of your future and stuff like that. Well, man, if I can't spend money when I'm alive, when am I going to spend it? All I'm saying is that, you, you have the ability to know how much money you can spend. And usually it's more than people want you to think, all right? right? So having a plan like this, if I tell someone, you need to save $4,000 a year, for example. Well, now they know, you know, after I save that money, I can spend it on anything else I want. So, you know, they're not constantly thinking, am I saving enough? Do, you know, will I have enough whenever a plan shows you if you're saving enough or not? And it makes it clear on whether you should take that vacation next year to Hawaii or not. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. For sure. And I know, yeah, like when you did ours, it really, the, the peace of mind I got was, was awesome yeah, because like just to know that, okay, you, you, you've also crunched the numbers, you, you've done all that math as well. And so to know, it so kind of eliminates like, oh, well, maybe that, that doubt, you know, like, oh, what if I did something wrong or, yeah. or, or, okay, well, my, my math says I can spend this, but can I, but you know, you start second guessing yourself, right? Like, can I really, right? And then, but in this case, it's like, okay, look, I've had a professional look at this. We have a plan, everything, you know, it's, it's good. And so it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a much, just much less stressful and, and, and the guilt-free thing is, is I think nice as well. Correct. Um, yeah. So very important. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I just yeah, I, I thought that was a really um, a really good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So so now that we have all the numbers uh, that we need from doing a financial plan, let's say you know you've done that with a client, we've got all that. Let's switch gears and talk about how to actually execute a, an early retirement or an early semi-retirement. So you know once you once you know that you have enough in your investments, so you know we've gone through the investments, you know there's enough. So to start off, how should our portfolio change when we move? from that accumulation phase so where we're you know working full time where we're saving we're investing to the decumulation phase where we're not working at all or maybe you know we're just working part time maybe that part time isn't enough to let's say fund our entire you know lifestyle so we're actually maybe drawing down on the portfolio a bit you know how how does the portfolio structure change when you make that leap okay so i'll say this the the major change that needs to happen and this is probably the only change that I think is universal to everybody. And I'll tell you what I mean. 
you, you, you need to get a little bit more conservative with your investments, plain and simple. Because if the markets do go down dramatically in any, in any given year during your retirement, then your portfolio is going to suffer. So it's a good idea to have a certain amount of money that you know is going to be coming in every year. And that can be accomplished, again, through pensions, but it can also be accomplished through annuities or on any other type of uh, type of investment that's safe or guaranteed investments, for example. So the one step is definitely people have to get a little bit more conservative. Unless you have a ton of money and you know you're not going to run out of it, then you can take more risk. But when you're 75 and, again, your portfolio is – you know, 80% equity or 100% equity or 60, whatever, and the markets go down by 30%, you're having, you know, heart issues at that point because you're seeing money go down and you're also withdrawing from it as well. That's a double whammy. So you definitely have to get a little bit more conservative. Now, when it comes to what other things need to be taken into account, well, that'll depend again on what the goals are as a, like say for example in, in in any situation cornell you have a certain amount of money and you want to leave some money to the kids not only the house or you don't have a house but you want to leave money well then you know you might want to say i'm going to live off the dividends and the interest that i'm going to be getting from my investments on the other hand if you have no children and you want to spend all your money well then you're going to be living off the interest dividends and you're going to be taking out some of the capital as well so it's Again, it comes to the boring answer of it all depends, but it really all depends. Now, there are certain, you know, I won't say rules of thumb, but there are certain things that are that are that are that have to happen. And one of them, as I said before, is getting a little bit more conservative when you retire. Mm -hmm. It's also a good idea to have like every year. I think it's important to start off the year with the amount of money that you're going to need for the next 12 to 18 months, for example, in your bank account. So if you're in a situation right now where you're retired, Cornell, and you got, let's say you want to spend whatever, $50,000 a year, and you have that $50,000 in your bank account, who cares what the markets do? You're living this year, right? And usually when markets go down, they don't go down forever. I mean, looking at the worst case scenario again, which was 2008, the markets bounced back relatively quickly. And I say relative to the drop that they had, which was about fifty percent, and the you know the the sky was falling, and it was it was the end of the world back then. And I lived that. Um, the markets came back, you know, relatively quickly. They were still volatile, but they came back. So usually, a down market lasts twelve to eighteen months, sometimes less, sometimes a little longer. But there are statistics about these things. So if you're holding twelve to eighteen months worth of money in your bank account. I say bank account, I mean in a guaranteed investment that you can have access to whenever you want, which is earning a boring one, one and a half percent right now. But that's another um, important you know, aspect to, to consider when you're retired. Mm -hmm. Have the money that you need for the next 12 to 18 months. Maybe even if you're very conservative, maybe even go two years. It's not going to hurt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah no, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And then... Um when in retirement, should Canadians tweak their portfolio to generate more yield and just try to live off that? 
or do you suggest just selling off a percentage of the portfolio every year uh, during the good years and then doing something like keeping a cash cushion during the bad years so that you know you're not selling your investments when the markets are down these are kind of two different strategies that people I, I find people often kind of debate about right as like the whole you know live off the yield live off the dividends kind of approach right versus right. no no draw down your portfolio by a certain by a sustainable amount every year yeah. uh, and you know so the dividends aren't that really that, that that's not a primary thing that you're looking at necessarily right, right. yeah uh, and that goes back to rules of thumb and and i and i take it back to what are the objectives what are your goals um i have a client who doesn't have any children and he's in retirement right now and they've accumulated a significant amount of money but they spend a lot of money also so we're definitely not living off the dividends and the interest because he's going to leave you know two million dollars behind to who to his cat we're drawing down <laughs> we're drawing down on the capital as well we want him to end up pretty much with zero Un but but again it comes back to the it all depends i have another client who wants to leave an estate. He wants to create a foundation when he passes away. So with him, we are living more off of the income and taking some capital. And, you know, there's going to be money left over for, for charity. So it really, it really depends. Um, you know, structure your portfolio in a way from a tax point of view where you're, you're obviously spending the least amount in taxes and, and, and if your portfolio is large enough to live off the dividends and interest, then great. But again, it depends. And again, I'm saying I'm saying it reluctantly because I hate when I hear, oh, it all depends. <laughs> you know, like give me a straight answer for crying out loud. But truly, there is no straight answer to that. It you know, I, I told you you can live off the dividends and interest because you're gonna be working part-time and so right. on and so forth. And then you said and then I told you, so you won't even be touching your capital. But then you said, like, you know, I might not want to leave any money to my kids or I might want to leave the house, whatever. Yeah. It all depends on what 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 person's what a person values. Yeah. But yeah. Gen generally speaking, generally speaking, you know, people don't live off the interest and dividends only. There's there's a drawdown. And like I said, you mentioned an interesting point where if we've had a bumper year in the markets, you know, and we made 13 percent instead of the eight that we need or seven or six that we need to sustain ourselves, chop it up a little bit and put that in safety. It doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like in our case, we were thinking, yeah, just to do the, um, the house can go to the kids kind of deal. Right. But, the the, the actual investments, you know, if, if you've earned that, you've been, you know, working for that, investing that I, I don't, I don't feel guilty for, you know, using some of that to actually, like live and Are enjoy you kidding you know, me? that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> and yeah, like the how I don't know. If, so if I get a house in retirement from like the parents, like I'll be pretty happy, right? Like that that's right. nice enough of a gift, I think, right? Everybody uh, yeah. has different different ways of valuing things, and you know, I I certainly, <laughs> if I see myself, I don't want to say it loud because my son's upstairs, <laughs> but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave many money. They're gonna have their house. <laughs> That's and why I'm getting defensive here now because I'm like, what if my daughter listens to this one day? Yeah, and she's, well, like, she's like, hey, dad, what the heck? <laughs> but you know what? That's also the you're teaching him the value of saving money. True. And, and, and I don't want there so to be important. a sense of entitlement either, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Like, I don't know. I, I think getting uh, 
you know, the primary residence after the prayer. Like, I think that's a really generous gift, right? That the kid is even, there is, there shouldn't be like an entitlement where like, yeah, I should definitely get the house and oh yeah, I should get their RSP money too. And you know, like, I don't know. And you know what? There, there are others that'll say, and I have a client that says, you know what? I, I, I put money for their down payment on the house that they live in. They can, that's their house too bad. Meaning not too bad. It, it all depends on, on, on what people value. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the clients that tell me, I, you know, my daughter got married and I bought her a condo, or at least I put the down payment on the condo. That's enough for me. I go, perfect. Mm -hmm. You're, you're making your contribution to your children and others don't want to, you know, the children to have anything. It's, it's, there's right. no right or wrong is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 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 I figured, you know, we'll help the, the kids out, you know, during the, like during their lives. Right. But once we're dead, it's like, okay, you can have the house or whatever, but I'd like to go on a, like a trip or something, you know, as opposed to like, oh no, that's the kids have to have some money saved in an RSP that belongs to us or whatever. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, anyway, anyways, I'm getting defensive in case my daughter hears this. <laughs> like, so gonna, make this no make this a rated for X. me. <laughs> make it a rated X. Yeah, yeah, make it like. Oh, yeah, we have to. We'll, we'll start swearing in the podcast so it gets ranked as our yes as, as and change the and then, settings. Change yeah. the settings. Are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but no, that's a, that's a, going back to kind of the you know living off the yield thing yeah like because that, that's something that i i know others have kind of considered that and i know we definitely have as well it's just like when i first approached you about this i thought well hold on should we maybe you know put our investments into just higher yielding assets mm -hmm. um you know because right now like you know we're just we're index investors right and so yeah you get some dividends off that but there are you know, higher yielding things we could do, uh, but then, but then, you know, you're getting that extra yield at the expense of growth, right? And and long term, you know, you you make more if, if you were more kind of growth oriented, right? So so that Correct. was yeah. So that was sort of the debate. But then yeah, like you mentioned, well, if you know, if we if, if we structure in a way that we're just living off the yield, well, so you're not touching the principal at all. It's just growing and growing and growing over. Like so, what are you gonna do with it at the end? Right. right? When, when you're exactly. like eighty, like you're, you know what I mean? Like, are you trying to build an estate? Because if you are, that's fine. But if you're not, then why would you just want to live off the yield, There you right? go. And that comes yeah. back to the – that also comes back – There's things are so interconnected. That also comes back to the rate of return that you're using and the amount of risk that you're taking. Right. If you don't want to leave an estate – again, there's so many different ways of looking at it, Cornell. If you don't want to leave an estate or whatever, you can have a much safer portfolio, which doesn't fluctuate. So you don't care if the markets go down 30% or not. And that way you're going to be, you're going to have less of capital, you know, 20 years down the road, but that's fine with you because you're not going to leave it anywhere. You know, you're not mm -hmm. going to, you're not going to give it to anybody. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Excuse um, me. No problem. Yeah. No, so, that, so that's great. So, um, you know, kind of, we're talking about fixed income a little bit here. So for the fixed income portion of uh, your portfolio, how do you decide between using bonds versus doing something like a GIC ladder? And can you maybe define what a GIC ladder is for maybe anyone that's not familiar with that uh, strategy? Yes. Okay, so let me start with GICs first. And one one thing is certain: there are people that say, "I want my money to be totally guaranteed, and if I see the money go down by just a little bit, I'm having a hard time and I can't sleep at night." That's where you know you definitely say GICs for clients. Bonds and bond funds, or bond indexes, or bond ETFs, also go up and down. As a matter of fact, this past week or so, we've seen some bond funds take a big hit because interest rates have gone up. So. I, I like to use for a certain portion of the safety portion of a portfolio, I like to use GICs and, and we do what's called a GIC ladder. And I'll explain that. 
let's say I have, you know, $200,000 and I'm going to invest it all in GICs. It's not a bad idea, depending on how, where interest rates are. It's not a bad idea to say, I'm going to take some of that money, put it in a one-year GIC, some of that money, put it in a two-year GIC, some of that money in a three-year. And I've been, when I do these things, I usually stop at three years because, again, over the past so many years, interest rates have been so low. It's I'm a little hesitant to lock in some money at four and five years. But it's not a, it's, it's a good idea to do something like that. So then every year, there's some money that's coming due. And you can take that money and then either you're going to use it or you can reinvest it in another three-year GIC or four-year GICs or if rates go up, do a five-year GIC. The bottom line is you have a sum of money, you break it up into three or four pieces and put in anywhere between a one and a four-year GIC. And every year you have some money coming due. So if rates go up, you can take it and put it into a four or five-year GIC. If rates go down, well, you can say, at least I locked some money at three and four years. So I'm not really hurting. And I'm, I only have a small sum of money coming due when interest rates are low. So that's what a GIC ladder is. It's breaking up your money into different maturities of GICs. And for that matter, you can also use bonds, individual bonds. But the thing is, Individual bonds have been giving less return, less interest than GICs, which is something unique. It's been happening for many years now, but usually it's bonds that give better rates than GICs. But bonds are so low right now that banks to compete have to give a little bit more uh, for GICs. So that's what you know um, a, a GIC portfolio looks like. Now, if people are okay with seeing their money fluctuate just a little bit, then I might go into a, a, a like a, a a bond portfolio. I'm never going to use the word mutual funds. Sorry, whoever is a mutual fund lover, they're just too expensive. Especially bond funds these days, where they're yielding, they're making one or two, two and a half percent, and you know, one percent goes to the bond manager. It's crazy. Oh yeah, but, I've seen but some, you could I've use some of those, and it was just it blew my mind. Where it's like. Yeah, yeah, like, like, I, like we had a we had a family member that was like, "Hey, Cornell, can you just take a look at you know, the, the this you know these investments I, I bought a while back just to make sure I'm not getting had or anything." And I looked at it, and I'm like, "You got to be kidding me!" You know, like they're earning, you're they're getting had, earning you're nothing. Getting yeah, because yeah, like because they're still charging the really high fees, but the interest is so low on the bonds that it's like you're getting nothing. It was it was ridiculous. So correct, yeah. correct. And, and I'm I'm I hate to say this, but I'm biased. You know, you know what I'm biased towards, Cornell. I'm biased towards. You know, indexing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Warren Buffett said to his family, when he dies, they should buy the S&P 500 and that's it. Right. They should buy an index. In other words, for, for people who don't know the lingo, they should buy an index or several indices. And that's what I do. And I'm saying it in, in a whispered tone in a sense, but but that's my, I guess that's my bias. <laughs> I hate to use the word bias, but I'm biased towards (laughs) inexpensive investments because I've seen studies uh, time and time again where it's difficult for portfolio managers to beat an index. So uh, that's that's what I stick with. Mm -hmm. So so if if somebody is you know comfortable having at least a little bit volatility in the bond kind of portion, would you recommend they just don't even bother with GICs and just stick to having bonds as part of their stock portion? I I think so, and 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 you know you can go get more yield. And I sometimes I'm 
I'm hesitant to use terms of the industry, but you can get a better return. You can make more money with corporate bonds for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when interest rates are very low, you want to make sure that the bonds that you're investing in um, are, you know, shorter maturities, anywhere between one and five years, one and seven years, let's say. And I'm not saying the investor should be doing this. This is what your financial advisor should be doing. Um, when interest rates are high, you might want to go into a longer term, you know, bonds, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Those were good, you know, 15 years ago. And when interest rates were coming down, those funds were making a lot of money. But now I'm getting a little bit too technical, I think. But definitely go into a bond fund if you can accept seeing the money go up and down a little bit. It's still very, very safe. And you can increase some of your yield by using, you know, corporate bonds. So Walmart, for example, might have a bond out there. Not a bad idea. They're, you know, they're going to pay you for sure. Mm-hmm. Or Coca-Cola or banks for that matter. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds good. And then uh, we talked about this a little bit, but what size of a cash cushion do you suggest for people that are in retirement or semi-retirement? Like I've heard t- two years used before, but like I remember when you crunched our numbers, you were like, oh no, two years would be totally excessive in, in our case because I'm still... You know, I still want to work part time, right? So I know, kind of, you know, there isn't there's rules of thumb in a way, but not, but they vary depending on your situation. Like it did exactly. in our case, what kind of cash cushion do you suggest for people? Maybe those that are, you know, fully retired versus semi-retired, something like that. I like saying, I like saying, and as an average, I'll use eighteen months, a year and a half. Oh, okay. And and if if someone has a lot of income coming in, which is steady income, then they don't need anything, right? If if that steady income will will provide for them Mm -hmm. but someone who's depending on their portfolio for most of their income i'd say i'd say i've said 12 to 18 months i've got to two years but i'd say on an average about 18 months okay okay gotcha and then for someone that's let's say just you know working they're not retired not semi-retired what what's Mm -hmm. it what kind of uh, how many months of expenses do you uh generally suggest when someone's working you're saying yeah yeah someone's just working so okay so you're talking about somebody who is working right now how much money should they have like in an emergency fund yeah yeah exactly exactly you know there's a the rule of thumb is six six months okay mm-hmm. again i i played case by case mm-hmm. you know if somebody has a very very secure job like a government job or something like that and interest rates are low and they haven't built an emergency fund and they're concerned I tell them, don't be terribly concerned. You have your regular income. If you know you have a line of credit in case of an emergency, when again I say when interest rates are low, right? But it's not a bad idea of having six months. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I'm if I'm somebody who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year, and there's a decent income coming in, and you know, usually they say you should you should have six months of income. I'm not going to scare somebody into saying they should have sixty thousand dollars in the bank just in case they get fired or whatever. Right, right. I, I I tend to think again that the industry scares people into thinking that they should have a ton of money sitting in cash. Also, and let me tell you one reason: the most profitable product that a bank sells to their clients is a bank account. Mm-hmm. That earns little interest because they take that money and they lend it to somebody to get a mortgage at three or four percent. They're making a killing. Right. So I'm just saying, don't get totally scared into, you know, saying that if you don't have an emergency fund, you're dead. It's a good idea to always have one, but three to six months for me is 
more than sufficient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's almost a bit like that 70% kind of guide that we were talking about earlier, right? Where it's right. like, oh, you're in retirement, you need 70% of your income. Where it's like, well, it, it depends. Yeah, and, and I like your point, like you said, like if someone's making, you know, like let's say you have a couple, let's say they're both making, you know, 100,000 or something or, or you know, or they're, you know, they're, or one of them is making quite a bit, but then, you know, their expenses are like ridiculously low. Well, you shouldn't right. just take a percentage of, that income and say, oh, that's always the rule. Because, yeah, it really depends on, well, what are they actually spending? What are, Correct. The, what are the necessities that they're spending? Like, what are the discretionary uh, discretionary expenses? What are the non-discretionary expenses that they can cut down if they did lose a job or something like that, right? right, so, right, right. so, yeah, there's all these, there's all these, uh, and like, yeah, like how secures your job and severance and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, like six months is the most common one I've heard used just from other, you know, all the different sources and stuff. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I just want to pick your brain to see if kind of your, on that board, uh, kind of if you're if, if you feel the same way, but uh, no. So Correct. thanks for. Uh, and, and again, I, yeah. I just hit rules of thumb. Okay, yeah. what if somebody has a ton of money in their RSP and they lose their job? They can start right. withdrawing money from their RSP, you know, tax free at a certain level, right? Right, right? Or at low taxes. So if I have a million dollars in my RSP and I lose my job and I don't have you know eighty thousand dollars in the bank account as my emergency fund. I'm not very concerned. You know what I'm saying? Right. Okay, so exactly. it all depends. Yeah. If somebody if somebody doesn't have a lot of savings and they have debt, obviously they should be paying off their debt first. But that's in a situation where there's not a lot of savings, your job is not very stable, let's say, or you know anything could happen. Then it's not a bad idea to build an emergency fund. But it's also quite difficult for a lot of people to build an emergency fund these days let's face it and that's where you know we gotta but we gotta come back down to the times where we're spending less than we're making that's what's killing us and it's it sounds it sounds so easy and you know what but that's what it is and for i'm getting a, i'm getting a little opinionated here cornell okay <laughs> but unfortunately truly unfortunately we live in a society where we value ourselves and other people based on the toys they have. That's too bad. That's really too bad because people who can't afford these toys and still buy them anyways, you know, mm -hmm. the stuff is going to hit the fan eventually. Right. And with how rate, low the rates have been, right, for, for years now, right? It's free money. I mean, it's it's so easy to to just, you know, oh, take out a home. Like people using, you know, like their home equity line of credits as like a, just as a cash mach machine, right? Like, oh, they're just, awesome. yeah, yeah, they're just buying things. Yeah. <laughs> as an ATM rather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the term that I see people using. And you yeah. know what? There's some great people out there on social media. And I follow, you know, I follow you. I follow some other people. And this is what everybody's talking about that. You know, we're, we're using our house like an ATM and there are some people that have half a million dollars in debt, all right, mm -hmm. in a house that they can't afford. And if interest rates go up by 2%, which would still make them historically very low, mm -hmm. a half million dollar debt all of a sudden is costing about a thousand dollars more a month. Mm -hmm. And that's 2%. And again, I stress an increase of 2% is still historically very low. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've lived through low interest rates for close to 20 years now, and they've been going lower and lower and lower. Nothing says that they're going to stay like that. So we just have to be careful with these things. Mm -hmm. no, no, for, for sure, for sure.
Um, yeah, I never quite understood the whole thing where people are like, "Oh, well, I want some granite countertops, so I'll use a home equity line of credit to right, pay for it." Right. Like, but you don't, you don't have that money. Like that's that's a loan, right? It, it, I don't know. I never can never wrap my head around. But people do it all the time, and I know this in the marketing too, right? It was very much. A, oh, I remember seeing all kinds of marketing campaigns from a lot of the banks where where they're basically, yeah, take out a home equity line of credit, use it to upgrade your house. Like that was basically what the marketing message was, right? Correct, like, hey, correct. Like, you know, you watch HGTV, you see all these cool things and it's like, well, hey, you've got equity sitting in your house. Why not tap it and buy that thing? You you know what I mean? And, exactly. and I'm just like, but that's not, you don't actually have that. I don't know. It's it, it it's yeah. alone now, right? <laughs> you know what? Again, again, uh, Cornell. There's a conflict of interest here because we're going to our banks for advice, and they're not going to tell us, "Don't take a line of credit; you can't afford it." Um, there are clients that I've suggested to pay down their debts. When you're walking into a bank, I again, uh, I I don't know how this will sound, but they want you to invest your money. So they're not going to tell you, oh, you have some cash, pay your debt. They're going to say, you have some cash, invest it. Mm -hmm. That's how they're making money, unfortunately. There's there's not a lot of people that will tell you, use your money to pay down your debt. I have clients now that I'm working with that have credit card debts of 20% <laughs> and they're saving $300 a month in their RSP oh. and money in a TFSA. And I'm like, stop, yeah. stop. Your debt is costing you 20%. Screw what the bank told you about, yeah, but you should start building anyways. Uh-uh. Right. Get that monkey off your back first mm -hmm. because that's what's costing you a lot more money. And it's just, it's difficult. It's difficult to get an unbiased opinion out there. And let me say one more thing here, Cornell, because I know many of your listeners are millennials, okay? And... The demographics that banks don't want to work with are millennials because they don't have – typically, they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest, okay? Mm -hmm. When a bank does your mortgage, they make zero dollars on it. They want your bank account. They want your credit. They want your investments. So that's why they might treat you well when you're doing you know, a, a bank loan. But when it comes to – you speaking to a professional and getting a good opinion and getting a valid financial plan when you're starting off with $10,000 in savings, nobody will want to speak to you. Mm -hmm. You're lucky if you speak to a junior banker of how you should invest that money or, or, or have a financial plan and stuff like that. So unfortunately, from an investment and retirement planning point of view, there's not a lot of help out there for the 20-somethings and 30-somethings, you know, and that's just too bad because, again, the industry is based on is is, is based on uh, commissions, and if you don't have a lot of money, nobody's really going to give you the time of day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and this is coming from you. I mean, you've worked, you've worked, you're like the insider, right? Because you've actually worked in the in the banking industry, right, for for quite a while. So you kind of see how how it works, right, and how the how things function and all that. So. It's not like you read this somewhere. This is that you actually seen this living, breathing thing. Uh, that's right. Happen to Canadians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and I, I, that's it. And I enjoyed your point about how, you know, how if, if somebody is in, you know, like your clients you mentioned, right? They have credit card debt, and yet they're being told to okay, invest in the RSP, that kind of a thing. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of it from the bank's angle, right? And it's like, well, for for the bank, it's like, okay, 
if, like, if that client has everything with them, which, you know, there's a good chance they have quite a few different things with them, right? Because it's just convenient yeah. to stick with like the same provider, right? So, right? so it's like, okay, so that client might have a credit card issued by the bank, right? They may have a mortgage yeah. issued by the bank. And they may have investments uh, that they're doing, doing through the bank, right? So now, right. so the bank's getting fees from the investments. They're getting fees from the credit card. They're getting, you know, interest from the mortgage, right? So it's like, what they want you to just increase those amounts, right? They don't want you to pay off the debt, or right? Like, no, of course not. You know what I mean? So, it's um, more, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's it's, and 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 here's here's the again the the reality is everyone. Banks have become a sales machine, okay? They still haven't gotten it quite right, but all they think about is sales. Everyone has objectives. So when, when and those objectives are, are, are looked at on a daily basis. So every day you're looking as to where you're going to make as much money as you can. And when it comes to getting biased or unbiased opinions, okay, let me give you one example that I always use. Let's say you're walking into. Let, let's say you're gonna. Meet, let's say there's a banker who is at sixty uh, percent of their objectives for mutual funds, and they're at one hundred and thirty percent for their objectives on GICs. And you got somebody walking in, your next client, who has money to invest, and they're looking for an opinion: should they be, be safe or should they be in mutual funds, for example? I'm sorry to say, but it's very likely that you're going to be put into mutual funds whether they're good for you or not because that advisor is at 60% of their objectives and their boss is down their down their back breathing on them heavily i've seen this happen mm-hmm. and if you remember maybe last year or within the past year there's been lots of former bankers coming out and talking about these things mm-hmm. and it exists it exists i mean that's just that's just that's just how it, how it is, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm saying, again, we're, we're sort of stepping back a little bit, but I'm saying be very weary when, when you're working with somebody who's working on you know, salary and commission or they're paid based on the products that they sell. There are some products that the bank sells that are much more lucrative to the advisor than others. Just keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And I guess too, like the, or the banker you're working with, they may not – because I, I guess it depends how their compensation is structured, right? But it's not like everybody receives, like the banker that you're dealing with directly receives direct commission, right? But I, I imagine their their bonus is probably tied to that or their job security is probably tied to that, right? So even if they're not getting physically paid by the you know mutual fund provider or whatever yes. the case is, there's it's still they still have that very strong conflict of interest there to push you one way versus the other that best benefits them that you know gets gets the boss uh, off their back or or you know, help, helps them get promoted yeah. because they sold more mutual funds than the next guy right, right even, even if they're not necessarily getting that you know commission directly from you know the whatever the look the i'll say i'll say this you know bankers who do some mutual funds and mortgages for example they don't get any commission but they have objectives but i'd say when when you're dealing with a financial planner in a bank if they sell a lot of mutual funds, they're making a lot of money. So it is commission-based. Mm-hmm. If they get a small base salary, but if they sell a lot more mutual funds than GICs, they'll make a lot more money, okay. 100%. Mm-hmm. So that, that happens at the branch level. And when you're at the brokerage level, it's all commission, okay. 100% commission. 
So the banking level is a little different, but people are still driven based on the product that they sell. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll make more money based on the product that they sell. Gotcha. Sounds good. Yeah, though, I know we kind of uh, diverted from the... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. But, Sorry, but, but this is really... I, I can tell that like, you and I are very uh, passionate about this. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> so important. It's to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's important, you know, like it's very important. You yeah. got to be able to trust and and get an unbiased opinion over, you know, out mm-hmm. there. And sometimes when I have clients, I'm telling them, you know, pay off your debts. They're like, huh? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I go, yeah, it's costing you more. You know, when you put the logic on paper, because they've never been told to do that. Right. You right. know, there's, there's, or even a mortgage. Look, mortgages are costing you three and a half, four percent let's see now, right? T- typically, typically, it's not a bad idea to have a mortgage. And if you have money, invest that money. Because you're probably right. going to make more than the 4%. But you have to make 4% after taxes, okay, number one. And number two, some people are not comfortable with debt, period. And if that's the case, then the first objective should be to pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. But that's for some people. Like My dad doesn't want to see a nickel go of his value of his money go down in value he's pure gic's i'm not gonna kill the guy it's i it might not be right but that's what keeps him comfortable right i've educated him he still feels the same way so it all depends again it comes back to the it all depends Mm -hmm. yeah no for sure and you don't want him you know stressed out and and then he's more likely to make a wrong decision right if you put him heavily into equities or something and then he hears what's happened the last few days in the markets and then he starts selling right and it's like well Exactly. Maybe he shouldn't have been in those in the first place if that's how, how he's going to Correct. Act, right? so, as long as yeah. people know, again, what the consequences are of being too conservative or too aggressive, mm-hmm. as long as they know what the consequence and they're comfortable with that. And in other words, I can have somebody says, no, I don't want any guarantee. I don't want any uh, fluctuation. That's fine. I'm, I'm 100% with you. Yeah, you just, just plan know around that. that at that point. Just yeah. know that in that case, you'll retire at 60 and you'll have you know 30000 to spend. Mm-hmm. And you're... And, as long as the client knows that, and I'm not here to judge, I'm here to educate and show the consequences of any decision that's being made. Right. And then if that's fine with the client, we implement. That's all there is to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, for sure. But that's what, comes, that's, what, that's what comes with being with a planner who is not biased towards any strategy or any product. That's right, the- right. Yeah, you get the you get presented the menu and then you pick what's the best fit for you. Exactly. Uh, get get counsel on that way as opposed to just being told to buy X because oh they didn't sell enough of those that day exactly. or that month. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you if you if you're trying to be convinced to buy something, that's another red flag. Let's go back to the red flags, okay? Right. If you're really feeling like you're being pushed, then man, walk out. Yeah, that's, a, that's a big flag for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like I know when you and I met, I never felt push to do any one thing it was just more here's what to consider and then ultimately i make the decision where where we invest and how to do everything you know how to do exactly. it and stuff. but yeah it, it feels more like you're speaking with a you know like a professional that has your best interest at heart as opposed to someone where you're like are they just saying this because they're trying to sell me this fund you know right. yeah, I think that's always that wasn't in my head right whereas if i exactly. spoke to someone that did sell them i'd always be wondering are they really suggesting this for the right reason you know yeah. what i mean you always yeah. wonder no, right absolutely yeah. so make sure you're dealing with somebody who doesn't get paid based on product mm-hmm. and that's where again you know let's go back 45 minutes or an hour ago of the letter of engagement where it spells out exactly how a an advisor gets compensated. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
yeah no that, that's great like, to, to, to have that uh and, and the advisor is very reluctant to talk about the compensation or anything then that's kind of a flag right there too right <laughs> that's a flag that will slap you right in the face from yeah, the way yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah. so uh yeah i got uh, two more questions for you so one is uh kind of, kind of going back to the whole you know executing yes, yes, early yes. retirement thing uh you know how, how should early retirees deal with moving money out of their rrsp early because okay. obviously you know repercussions if you take it out before you're supposed to yes so um the time to take out money from an RSP, whether you're retired or not, is the time where your income is going to be lower than it will be in the future. So if you're retiring at 55, for example, and you know, you're know you going to get your, your, your pensions from Canada at 65, and there, there's debate on whether you should take it at 65 or 60, and that's something that's, – let's leave that for another show, but – you can take out RSPs when your income is low. So if you're retiring at 55 and you have, you know, non-registered money, money outside your RSP or TFSAs that you're going to use to live off, then you should start withdrawing RSPs because you're not going to have too much taxable income, right? So at between 55 and 60, for example, you might have very little income if you retire, mm -hmm. which wouldn't be a bad idea to start withdrawing some income. Now, I have clients who... They lost their job and and they haven't worked for a year. So now I'm telling them, let's take out money from your RSP right now. Take it and put it into your TFSA. You have nothing to lose. So it all depends on the amount of income that you have and how much income you can expect to have going forward. And that's where my tool comes in, where I'm able to make projections as to how much income somebody will have. And that way we can say, okay, between this year and that year, we can withdraw a lot of RSPs. Mm -hmm. Between this year and that year, we shouldn't. So again, it depends on how much money people have and how much income they have. But during low income years, low taxable income years, that's when you should start taking money out of your RSPs. Mm -hmm. Hey, can you talk about the, that's very helpful, job. Can you also talk about the basic personal amount as well? Because I don't, I don't know if everybody knows about that. Uh, and how you know if you're retired, you can basically withdraw from the RRSP and actually use that uh, that money to basically have some some tax-free funds essentially. Right, right. So it's it's tax time very soon, and so the first twelve thousand or so dollars of uh, of taxable income that someone makes is tax-free. So let's say you have no income and you decide to take. $12,000 out of your RSP or close to $13,000 out of your RSP, that comes to you tax-free. You're going to pay when you're taking it out of the bank or your, or your portfolio, okay? But you're going to get it back at tax time if you have no other income. Now, another important aspect to remember is that if you have children, if, you know, this depends again on your situation. People might have certain tax credits, um, there, there's obviously there's different tax credits that people have that can even bump that amount of money into a higher bracket or into a higher amount. So there are people that are, you know, could take out $20,000 from their investments or their RSPs without paying any taxes, depending if they're married, what age, if they have children, you know, what expenses they can declare, so on and so forth. So it takes, again, a good, a, someone who has good knowledge in tax and someone who, uh, and uh, th that you can that can advise you and say, here's a good time to take out money, 
And here's not a good time to take out money. For example, the one client that I'm always going back because we're working on a situation now is where him come at 71, he's going to have a huge tax bill because of his RSPs. We're starting to change our strategy now with him. He came to us about a year ago and we're starting to change our strategies where we're looking at, again, different types of strategies where your investments are growing, but tax-free scenario. This is something that I talked to you about, Cornell. Maybe something to look at, you know, in the future. Mm-hmm. But um, but back to the original question: the first twelve thousand dollars of income that you make is tax-free. So there's room where you can take out money from your RSP. Yeah, I mean, which is great. I mean, if you have, um, like, if you, you know, you're a couple, let's say, right, and you each have that, right? I mean, that's over twenty thousand dollars that you know you can take out tax free, essentially, right? So that's that's a pretty substantial exactly. amount now, you know, that you could use for your kind of day to day spending, that kind of deal that you're getting tax free. Um, but, but but like John sure, said, there sure. are different tax credits, things like that. So it's not always a, it's just that number. That's all you have to think about. Like I know you know if, if you have a, an accountant or if you do your taxes yourself and you use a, a good financial, um, a good accounting software, right? They software. Should, they should factor yeah. all that in. So kind of, you know, do your own math or, you know, seek a you know, professional account that you use to, um, sorry, I mean, use the professional software that's that, that you know was very good and can and will account for that or deal with an account that you know will take that into account so they can kind of structure things for you tax efficiently there. But yeah, but I mean, it's a good thing to know about, right? I mean, that you can get, you know, 20, like over 20K just, just tax-free like that. So you can, because, you know, I've, I've talked to some people, right, where they, they're not earning any income, so they can just take that RSP money and they take just, a, you know, a bit to, to cover that basic personal amount, right? So they take like the 27,000 right. from the RSP put into, and then they basically get it, that money now tax-free. So when they put it into, when they put into their RSP, they were maybe, you know, earning a lot of money. They were, you know, they were, they would have gone taxed a lot by it on that money. But now because they put it in the RSP and they're taking it out at this lower amount, now that they're taking that, they're getting that money tax-free, which is pretty, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty sweet uh, gig. So, um, exactly. yeah, yeah. So just something to, to think about or, you know, ask your accountant about or, or read up on it, that kind of a thing. That amount does change from, uh, you know, from over the years, like the government can change it and such. So you can always it's, Google. it's been increasing. I think, I think it, it, it moves along with inflation. So yeah. It, it it moves from one year to another. Yeah, yeah. Like I saw it change from like, I believe it was last year to this year. But yeah, so you can always Google it and find out what what it is, you know, currently. But right. uh, but yeah, like your tax software, your accountant would know that. John, do you guys do, a, like at your firm, do you guys do a, accounting as well for people or is it just financial planning? Excuse me. Um, tax returns and stuff like that, no. Oh, okay. We give a lot of advice, yeah. obviously, but not uh, actual tax preparing or or, or anything like that. Not we, I mean, I have people that I refer. Mm-hmm. I refer. I, re- I refer clients to accountants depending on you know how complicated things are or not. But uh, but as far as doing taxes, no, we don't. Gotcha. Yeah. So if somebody um, wants to speak with you about this kind of stuff, they can like, like you can help them. Uh, kind of with a planning piece, and then, and then yeah. you would, I guess, deal with their accountant to make sure, um, or, or you know, or help them kind of, you know, to make sure that when they do their own taxes or with their uh, talk with their account that this is factored in, uh, because so that they're aware of the whole strategy and everything. Yeah, absolutely, and I'll never, I mean, any kind of tax suggestion that I make, I'm always saying, let's speak to your accountant first, and I'm, yeah. I, I, I usually want to take part in the conversation as well. For sure. That makes um, sense. But I just want to cover cover my back when it comes to that because I'm, I'm by 
trade, I'm not an accountant, that's for sure. Right, right. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I mean, my understanding is with most financial planners, they aren't accountants also. So financial planning is one field. And then when it comes tax time, they work together with the accountant that the person may have to make sure that everything is synchronized, that everyone knows what's going on, what the strategies are. And exactly. That, and, that way you're, and that way you're executing things efficiently from the accounting taxation side and also from the financial planning side. So, exactly. Um, yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah, I just thought I'd, thought I'd ask uh, that as well. One kind of final thing is, I mean, you know, thank you for your time, you know, for doing the financial plan for our family. Yeah, it was definitely a great experience for us, but, you know, from start to finish, you know, and even though I live and breathe this stuff and, you know, have done my own financial plans and stuff in the past, I still felt I received a lot of value just from having someone other than myself and with your experience too, right? And then fresh set of eyes to look at all our numbers and investments and figure out what is safe for us to retire, you know, whether it's safe for us to retire or not. So, so big thank you to you for doing our family's financial plan. I, I, you know, it was definitely a great experience. I definitely, you know, highly recommend it. And yeah, that, that's it. Just, so just thank you so much. And then, you know, tell us a little bit about your financial planning practice and what you offer uh, to help Canadians as well. Yeah. So that, look, I really enjoyed myself also because it's interesting doing a financial plan with uh, individuals or families that know what you know what all this is all about also because you're able to challenge me with some questions that I don't usually get from you know the let's say the average type of uh, family right so it's always fun um, you know talking talking this stuff with people that are knowledgeable and also you know showing them some things or showing them some angles that perhaps they hadn't experienced so I really enjoyed myself also I enjoyed the process and uh, so, so th thanks for that. So basically, we're as I mentioned, I work for an, a, a firm called Iron Shield Financial Planning. We're uh, across Canada. The head office is in, is in Ontario, and I was approached to open up an office here in Quebec. But I basically um, we work with Canadian families, and as I've, you know, I mean, probably you'll, you'll understand that we don't get paid on commission. We get paid based on doing a financial plan. And then we implement the strategies using investments that we think are best for clients. And as I said, I'm more biased towards exchange traded funds. So generally speaking, the fees are almost nil when it comes to the investments. And um, so we, all Canadian families are welcome. I used to specialize in business owners, but I've had, and I used to only accept business owner clients actually, because I really have a passion for that. But there's been quite a bit of, I mean, I, you know, last time I did your show, I had several clients that were asking me if, if we're able to work with, with them and they weren't business owners. And, you know, I told them you were a listener on Cornell's podcast and then fine, but I decided to open it up now with a new firm that I'm, that I'm involved with. I have a little bit more, uh, help when it comes to administration and stuff like that. So I'm able to take on a few more clients. So we're open uh, for clients like that. And one interesting offer that I have, and I mentioned to you earlier that millennials are really getting the shaft in a sense, because every single millennial that I've dealt with, that I work with have told me what an, not my words, but I'll still say it, what an awful experience they had with, people in the banking industry because like I said if you have little money or you're starting out you're not going to get a lot of attention that's that's a fact that's that's just how it is and um, so what I've decided to do is we're doing something with online online with Millennials where I'm helping people 
with their financial planning and retirement planning. And we do it uh, online for a monthly fee. That's something that I've talked to you about, Cornell. Um, but it's quite an interesting offer that perhaps I'm, you know, I'm not going to get into too much detail right now. But if they have any questions, people have any questions, you can obviously call me or contact you. But it's something that's interesting where it's a monthly fee. It's very affordable. And you're not getting shafted with, with commissions. As a matter of fact, the investment side is almost free. So uh, there's, uh, I have some clients that are actually spending less money for their investment advice than or I, from a percentage point of view, they're paying a lot less than what very high net worth families are paying for portfolio managers. All this to say that it's very, very cheap. And it's 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 done like this because let's face it, millennials don't have a ton of money to be to be you know to be spending when it comes to advice. And the truth is fees are they take up a lot of money, let's say. And there's many ways that you can get around paying fees, especially as a millennial. And we have lots of tricks that we can show people on how to use their money. And I offer on on, on Fridays we have a Facebook group for the millennial client segment where you know people are asking questions um so they're pretty much getting the uh, financial advice they need but you're getting it online through social media and stuff like that which is what millennials love now more established families they have let's say more complex needs like yourself for example it would be hard to do what we did online with you like only through social media and stuff like that but i have obviously clients that are in my private practice and you know, I deal with them across Canada the way I've dealt with you. It's a little bit more complicated, so there's a little bit more connection. So we help you know established families as well with their with their financial planning and and, and implementation of the plan as well. So it's quite interesting what we do. All right, John. Well, no, thanks so much for that, and uh, and thanks for like I said once again, thanks again for doing our our financial plan, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Had a great time, Cornell. As you can see, we, we always have a good time when we talk, so I really enjoyed it. For sure, for sure. I'll, I'll see you see you next time. We'll have you on again. Uh, I think I mentioned you were, I think, one of, if not the most popular, uh, most downloaded podcast I've ever had on the show. So it's nice to, uh, nice to have you back, and, and I'm looking forward to many more. All right, I hope you enjoyed the episode with John. Don't forget to take him up on his offer for a complimentary consultation to get some of your financial planning and investment questions answered by going to Build Wealth Canada ca slash john that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash john just j-o-h-n you'll of course also get my free gift on the top five questions to ask your financial planner when you do sign up and last but not least don't forget to try out the index investing course risk-free to learn how to passively grow your portfolio while also paying the lowest fees in canada the course takes you through every detail of how i personally invest and on top of that you'll have 60 days to go through it and see if it's right for you and if it's not you'll get a full refund no questions asked. So once again, you can try out the course risk-free at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. All right, so have a wonderful week and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 